Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God, help us to remember and to never forget that you abide within and that you sustain every person. Amen. And please be seated. In Epiphany, the church basks in the light of Christ revealed to us. But contrary to our expectations, we find that the light of Christ shines out from the marginalized as God listens attentively to the voice of cries from the wilderness. You see, God is revealed to the oppressed in ways that the powerful do not know. And so our salvation, in fact, every person's salvation is necessarily wrapped up in listening to the voices of the quote-unquote other. This morning, I'll be concluding what has become an annual sermon series here at Pearl Church during the season after Epiphany. We call this sermon series Voices from the Wilderness, during which we pay special attention to the marginalized voices as divine light in this world. This year, we've talked about Muharista theology and Minjung theology, and last week, Pastor Ben introduced us to Dalit theology, which comes out of India. This morning, we're going to explore the soul of Dalit theology as we see it in the scriptures. But first, a reminder about Dalit theology. As Ben shared last week, Dalit theology emerged in India as a discipline in the 1970s during a time of upheaval, political activism, and violence against the Dalit people. The term Dalit comes from the Sanskrit dal, and it literally means burst, split, broken, torn asunder, downtrodden, scattered, crushed, and destroyed. The word Dalit is a self-identification used by the approximately 16% of Indians who live as subcasts or outcasts or sometimes they're called untouchables. You see, woven tightly into India's social structure is an ancient caste system which divides people into a social strata that moves from great to, to less and less worth, great worth to less and less worth and less and less purity. It all depends on the caste a person finds themselves abiding within. And below, underneath India's caste system of priestly, ruling, merchant, serf, underneath these four primary castes, underneath these, we find the Dalit. With this in mind, Dalit theology focuses on three main themes. First, it provides a critique of the Brahmanization of Christianity. That is to say, it's critical of a Christianity that is primarily good for the Brahmin, for those who exist at the very tip-top of the caste system. 
Second, Dalit theology addresses the social, economic, and political injustice that's experienced in this world by the Dalits. And third, and this is really important, Dalit theology attempts a truly indigenous expression of Dalit voices doing their own theology. Now, that which stood out to me the most that I'd like to take some time to explore this morning is what Ben called the politic of purity and disgust. This is powerful language. You see, purity codes, similar to those that we heard this morning from our reading in Leviticus, purity codes are used to explain who gets a seat at the table. And of course, those who sit at the table belong because they are considered good enough, pure enough, which in turn means that those who are different, different than those who belong, do not actually belong at the table. And that's because their difference is considered impure or polluted, which is a very common human propensity, right? To consider that which is different as impure is a very common human propensity. Now, here's the thing. In this politic of purity and disgust, what happens when Christianity speaks of God as holy and pure? What does this mean for the Dalits who are considered polluted, well, Dalit theologian Peniel Raj Kumar explains, the association of the divine with the holy and the pure proved to be foundational for the oppressively hierarchical caste system, namely notions of purity and pollution that have proved oppressive to the Dalit communities. Such symbolization of the divine projected the Dalits as being the very antithesis of the pristinely pure divine being. And so, in a caste system oriented around purity, proclaiming a pure God who is holy, a pure God who is holy, it had the effect of, of, of condemning the outcasts and elevating the higher castes all in the name of God. Now, it's into this context, this way of seeing the world, that Dalit theology makes a shocking claim, which is God is not pure. That's an interesting claim, isn't it? Much the opposite, in Dalit theology, Jesus, we're told, is Dalit. Jesus is Dalit. I want to say it a third time. Jesus is Dalit in Dalit theology. And this brings me to the power or pain of representation. In an article on the importance of representation, Anna Christina Ramon, assistant director of the Bunk Center, which, which is the Center for African American Studies at UCLA, states... What you see often becomes a part of your memory and thus a part of your normal life experience. What you see often becomes a part of your memory and thus a part of your normal life experience. As a way to demonstrate how powerful representation is, the HuffPost rounded up 12 moments that underscored the power of representation in our world. I'm not going to read all 12. I'm just going to share three examples because that's very Trinitarian. Okay, so, so first, hair like mine. That, that's what the first example is called, hair like mine. In 2009, then White House photographer Pete Souza captured a powerful moment when five-year-old Jacob Philadelphia met Barack Obama and asked if the president's hair was like his. This photo is one of my favorites, documentary filmmaker Don Porter said of the image. It speaks to the importance of representation 
When children see people who look like them in places of power, it lets them know their dreams are absolutely possible. Here's a second example called Target's Viral Display. A year ago, a boy named Oliver Garza Pena, who has caudal regression syndrome and uses a wheelchair, was struck while shopping at Target by a display featuring another boy who uses a wheelchair. His mom shared the meaningful experience in a viral post on his Facebook page, writing, Today, Oliver stopped me dead in his tracks and turned back around to see this picture that he spotted. He just stared at it in awe, she wrote. He recognized another boy like him, smiling and laughing on a display at Target. Oliver sees kids every day, but he never gets to see kids like him. This was amazing. And a third example is called the inauguration of Kamala Harris. When Kamala Harris was sworn in as the nation's first female, black and Asian American vice president, it was a significant moment for girls, and especially girls of color in the U.S., Retired NFL player Tory Smith illustrated this when he shared a photo of his two-year-old daughter, Corey, wearing a shirt that read, my VP looks like me on Instagram. I'm so excited for my daughter, he wrote in the caption. Anything is possible, but it's different when you see it. Representation, it's a big deal. And not just in politics, in media, but in religion as well. And so if, if you're Dalit, you're the lowest of the low of the lowly, and the divine has been cast your entire life as, as Brahman, right, the highest ritual status of the four social classes, if you're way down here and God is way up there, then, then what hope is there for you to be like God or for you to be with God when there's so much incredible difference between oneself and the divine? Well, into this conundrum, into this question, into this, this difference comes Dalit theology, which states God is not pure. God is not pure. In fact, Jesus is Dalit. Now, at this moment, you may be asking, well, can that be done? Should that be done? Like, can a particular people claim that Jesus represents them? Can that happen? Does that happen? Well, a few examples. I can clearly remember a picture that my Grammy had on her nightstand of Jesus. I can clearly remember it. I remember it so well because my Grandpa John, he snored. He snored so terribly that Grammy didn't sleep with Grandpa John. Grammy slept in her other room, her hobby room. And on her little bed stand right next to her was a lamp, a clock, and a picture. Not of Grandpa John, but of Jesus. I remember it so clearly. Just good old Jesus. Brown flowing hair, high cheekbones, thin pink lips, ivory white skin, and no joke, blue eyes. That was my Jesus. It was at least my Grammy's Jesus. Jesus looked a lot like a white person when I was growing up. But it's not just white Western Christians who have claimed that Jesus represents them in more important ways. A couple weeks ago during my sermon on Minjung theology, I noted how James Cone, the great black theologian, taught that God did not kill Jesus on a tree like white people killed black people on trees. Because if that were the case, then God would be a violent, white, racist, tyrant of a man, which is not good news for people of color. 
And so instead, rather, Cohn explained that God in Jesus hangs in solidarity with every lynched person. Similarly, in Dalit theology, God in Jesus is Dalit. Burst, split, broken, torn asunder, and even, maybe even, especially impure. Jesus as impure. And this, you see, is good, very good news. For how else can the Dalit experience God among them? Truly, there is no other way but through representation. That's how important this word is. Now, returning to the question I asked a moment ago, can that be done? Answer, I think it must be done. It must be done. Humans, every kind of human being must be able to see themselves in God. Or to put it the other way around, every kind of human being must be able to see God in themselves. Otherwise, there will be forever estrangement. Forever. And even worse, those who see God reflecting in themselves will use God to exclude those who are different, which is what we've seen throughout millennia and even throughout church history. And this point, that humans must be able to see themselves in God, is core to what we see in the soul of Scripture. So a few examples. In Genesis, we read, Then God said, let us make humankind in our image. So God created humankind in his image. And in the image of God, he created the male and female. God created them. You see, from the very beginning, humans have been walking, breathing, living images of the divine. In fact, Genesis seems to say, hey, do you want to see? Do you want to actually see God? Well, then look at, look at a human, any human. Maybe we should say every human will do. For any human, every human is an image bearer of divinity. And of course, I'm not saying that any particular human being is completely God, unless, of course, we're talking about Jesus' incarnation, which I'd like to do just for a moment. Around the time of Jesus' incarnation, Greece had been overtaken by Rome, but, but Greek thought was central to the empire, in which it was believed that a person was comprised of two parts. Part one was the flesh. Within Greek thought, the flesh was considered temporal, dirty, impure. And then there was the second part of the body in, in Greek thought, which is the soul. The soul was considered to be eternal and pure. In other words, in Greek thought, God was not represented physically, only spiritually, because the physical was impure. And into this way of seeing it all, into this way of seeing it all, dirty flesh, glorious soul, uh, condemned flesh, eternal soul. Instead of this binary thinking, into this world came the incarnation. The incarnation from the Latin, incarnatio, from incarne, literally in meat, in flesh. God in Jesus talking. God in Jesus walking. God in Jesus eating. God in Jesus crying and suffering, and God in Jesus dying. You see, suddenly God is no longer up there, out there. Uh, no longer is God merely spirit calling us up, out, away from ourselves and away from this world. No, in Jesus, we bear witness to the fullness of divinity within humanity. Divinity within humanity talking. Divinity within humanity walking and eating and crying and suffering. Divinity within humanity dying. 
And suddenly we find ourselves, every one of us, represented in the life of Christ. For truly, who doesn't communicate or move about or eat or cry or suffer or die? This is every person's experience. In this morning's New Testament reading from the book of Acts, we heard these words, For in God we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we too are God's offspring. You see, every person moves and breathes in God. More so, every person is the offspring of God. Every person a child of God. And so, is it okay for the Dalit to understand God is impure? Yeah, absolutely. It's biblical, it's theological, it's incarnational to see God in us and to see ourselves in God is part of this incarnational story into which we are all invited. As I understand it, one of the greatest curses in this world is to not self-identify with the divine. And this curse has been placed upon people of color and women and queer folk and the Dalit by people who have power and who declare, we look like God, <laughs> We look like God. Our lives, our biology, our sexuality, our ethnicity, our beliefs, we look like God. This is a horrifying reality for many people in this world who are considered by the powerful as different and therefore impure. You see, what we need, what we desperately need is not less but more Dalit theology. We need more Muharista theology. We need more Minjung theology. We need more black and queer and womanist theology. We need theology that represents every kind of person in this world so that every kind of person might come to understand that they bear God's image, that they're a child of the divine, and that they fully belong as they are at Jesus' table, which is truly common. There's a Dalit poem written by Umesh Solanki. It's translated by Dr. G.K. Van Carr, and I'd like to read it this morning. The poem is titled, The Seed. It was blatant and blunt. Now it is subdued and subtle. It moved down to the core to remain invisible, stuck solid at the bottom of heart, caramel and honey. The innocent words loaded with scorn and hate. When I flip through their books, my fingers get pierced with pricks. I am on my road and maybe it's my way. I don't get stumbled by their strike, but neither do I get to reach anywhere. My pain has reached beyond. Those two lines, they especially break my heart. When I flip through their books, my fingers get pierced with pricks. You see, too often our sacred book has been used to pierce and to prick those who are different from the norm, whoever the norm is. But the Genesis account and Jesus' incarnation and Paul's message to the Athenians invite, no, 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 they demand. They demand theological work that is truly deeply and favorable in depicting every person as participant in the life of God, especially those who are considered cursed, like Jesus who hung on a cross. I'd like to conclude with a poem this morning by the great Gerard Manley Hopkins, English poet, Catholic priest. Uh, he writes spectacularly about the magnificence of this world's diversity in which God abides. It's probably my favorite poem by Hopkins. It's titled Pied Beauty. 
Glory be to God for dappled things. I love this poem because as opposed to seeing difference as impure, he looks at difference with curiosity and wonder and intrinsic inherent goodness. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire coal, chestnut falls, finches wings, landscape plotted and pierced, fold fallow and plow, and all trades their gear in tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzled dim. He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. May it be so. It must be so. And let us pray. God, help us to remember and never forget that you abide within and that you sustain every, every single person, especially the most different. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.